0: Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through Bandcamp.com That's Catalyst and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mm-hmm. been a growing industry effort to explore the use of psychedelics for their potential medicinal benefits. While much of these efforts have looked to these drugs to treat a range of psychiatric conditions, Eleusis sees a broader potential for them. While the company is pursuing psychedelics as potential treatments for major depressive disorder, it is also developing psychedelic candidates in other indications because of their anti-inflammatory properties. We spoke to Shlomi Raz. CEO of Eleusis, about the case for psychedelics as treatments for inflammatory conditions, how they work, and what challenges the development of these drugs pose. Shlomi, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Daniel. Pleasure.
0: We're going to talk about the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, Eleusis, and its pipeline of experimental therapies that extend Well, beyond mental health indications, there's a a growing interest in psychedelics as medicines. What's led to the transformation of this area from one of illicit substances to wonder drugs?
1: Well, I I think that um, the science has led the way. Uh, and, and really, it's been clinical research conducted at top universities around the world, um, principally Johns Hopkins to start and now uh, all over Imperial College, Yale University, New York University, et cetera. So, uh, uh, very much led by the science first. I think that um, when you, the question of wonder drugs though is interesting because I think that. Uh, psilocybin like ketamine are drugs that have a tremendous amount of promise for the treatment of depression within psychiatry. And, and, and these drugs have uh, therapeutic potential and other drugs beyond psychiatry. But um, the classification of wonder drug always brings the kind of, um, and probably justifiable skepticism of, um, is the hype real? And and what's really kind of the fundamental uh potential and also what are the stumbling blocks for these therapies. And so all of those things are are really the the focus of the company in, in in looking to develop uh, these therapies, both within and beyond psychiatry.
0: How restrictive an area is this to work in today? And historically how hampered has research been?
1: Um, it, It has never been, um, more easy to uh, do research in this area uh, you know, it was since over the last 40, 50 years, things have dramatically changed. I think that um, what's what's really notable is the amount of knowledge that the regulators have uh, in this space. The FDA, EMA are very well informed about both the therapeutic potential of these drugs, as well as the, the risks associated with their um, development and use. And so I think you have a very informed regulatory um, audience, and you also have increasingly uh, investors and other sources of capital that are willing to explore and develop these therapies. So uh, I don't see um, really the limitation being that of a, a regulatory or um, legal one. And it's much more about um, the, you know, the, the aspects of clinical development and really how do you take something with potential and, and translate that into a, a solution to address unmet needs?
0: there's long been interest in the potential of these substances to treat depression and and addiction, but you're looking at a broader range of diseases. Among other things, you're looking at these substances as potential anti-inflammatories. What's understood about the potential use of these drugs as anti-inflammatories?
1: Yeah, I think that you know our company is, is, is really notable for the fact that we have the, the world's leading scientists and, and, and clinical developers focused on the full range of potential, both within and beyond psychiatry. Interestingly, when people think about serotonin, they, they, they think about it in the context of depression. They think about it in the context of psychiatry. But actually, serotonin is a modulator of, of you know, basic function throughout the body. Um, and in fact, um, there's more serotonin in our, in our gut than in our brain. And in particular, the primary target of psychedelics, the, 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 um, the, the primary receptor, which mediates the psychedelic effects of psychedelics, serotonin 2A receptor is ubiquitously expressed throughout the body. Um, it's on all immune cells, it's on all major organ systems. And so fundamentally, um, we have been in a way dazzled and, and a bit distracted by the profound psychiatric potential of these drugs and certainly their perceptual effects. But in reality, there is a much broader potential because these drugs appear to modulate um, stress response in a variety of ways. You know, you, you, if you think of it in the context of psychiatry, then depression or anxiety or substance abuse are, are all in a way related to of the kind of inappropriate or maladaptive response to stress. In the rest of the body, you know, whether it's um, due to aging, whether it's due to, you know, an inappropriate immune response, we see similar type of modulation where the serotonin 2A receptor seems to be implicated in a variety of chronic inflammatory diseases. Um, The initial discovery of the potent anti-inflammatory effects of some psychedelic compounds was was first made by our scientific founder, Professor Charles Nichols at LSU. the, that research um, that kind of uh, kicked off you know, uh, a long um, research campaign in the development of, anti, of, of the anti-inflammatory potential of psychedelics has led us through uh, a number of very interesting discoveries, specifically that some psychedelics are potently anti-inflammatory in models of allergic asthma in um, cardiovascular disease and in a variety of different models of, of um, inflammatory disease associated with ophthalmology related to diabetic retinopathy or macular degeneration in addition to which there is potential in neurodegeneration in a variety of other conditions and so fundamentally the potential is massive, and the key question is, and, and really, I think we've addressed this, and we're we're very excited to kind of uh, take it to the next step. Is how do you bias the psychedelic away from its perceptual effects and and make it purely a anti-inflammatory or, or immunomodulatory medicine, and, and that's something that we are working on, and we're very excited about the results that we're seeing.
0: Well, in terms of mechanism of action, are these drugs? working in the same way from indication to indication or are there differences in the way they act on a psychiatric condition compared to an inflammatory condition?
1: Well, the the way they work in psychiatry is is not well understood. And generally speaking, how any drug works in psychiatry is not well understood. I mean, uh, you know, what's fascinating is The original insight into serotonin's role in depression was first made by looking at the similarity of the LSD molecule and scaffold to serotonin. And that led researchers ultimately to the development of SSRIs over a long period of time. Um, I think that um, how SSRIs work is still a bit of a mystery. Um, so with psychedelics, you know, we clearly know that if you block the serotonin 2A receptor, the, the psychedelic does not, um, you know, have its effect, right? That's clearly the, the primary target but downstream from that receptor, it's still being pieced together, right? It, it, it's uh, clearly complex it's, uh, and it's not something that you can, see, it's not a kind of something that's easily reduced. And we're seeing the same thing in inflammation. Um, so the mechanism of action, clearly uh, it is downstream of the serotonin 2A receptor, but that's when it starts getting interesting. And I think that um, a, a simple kind of perspective of a ligand and a receptor uh, and kind of activating um, um, kind of paths downstream from the receptor, uh, unfortunately, it gets, it gets very complicated from that point on. Um, but the nice thing is that we you know, been looking at that both in vivo, in vitro, as well as in the kind of clinical translation, and we're starting to get a better sense of what's happening. But, um, but to that point, whether it's psychiatric or anti-inflammatory, Those are the mysteries that um, scientists, certainly within our company, our sponsored researchers and around the world are still trying to piece together.
0: I think you may have been alluding to this point a moment ago, but these drugs can have powerful psychoactive effects as therapeutics. Do you need to alter them in any way or is it a matter of dosing? And if dosing, can you get a therapeutic effect without
1: the more psychedelic experience? I think it depends on the context uh, and kind of where, you know, what, what, is the, what is the indication that you're pursuing and, and really what are, what, what are the key features? So I think that in the context of, for example, ophthalmology, uh, we believe that um, our, our current lead candidates that are uh, entering preclinical development or entering clinical development right now, Um, will have a therapeutic effect, but will not have any type of psychoactive effect. They will not be perceptual. The the margin of safety, i.e. the difference between the effective dose to treat the ophthalmological condition and the perceptual dose is, let's say, 20 to 50 times uh, kind of difference, right? So you would need to, you know, there was no way that you would actually have a perceptual effect. But within psychiatry, Um, that's unclear. Um, We believe that, you know, based on the evidence so far, you do need a dose which clearly is going to be perceptual, especially if you're using a drug like ketamine, which is a different mechanism of action, but psilocybin in particular. So to our mind, in the context of psychiatry, while there may be drugs in the future that can exert effects uh, without the perceptual effects, you know, we're focused very much on taking drugs that are known to have efficacy within psychiatry. So for example, psilocybin. And rather than trying to take away their perceptual effects through chemist, through medicinal chemistry, instead focusing on new ways of formulating the drug and delivering the drug so as to make it tolerable, predictable, and, and, and crucially affordable and accessible, right? Because it's 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 all good and well if you can develop a therapy that works in kind of an idealized setting, um, but you know how do you make it uh, accessible to the vast populations of patients who are in suffering? You know, and uh, and that's really the focus of our effort in psychiatry is taking drugs that we, we know work and 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 making them actually um, broadly accessible, affordable, and tolerable.
0: There are a, a range of psychedelics, both natural and synthetic how broadly are you looking at these and is the idea to use existing psychedelics or develop new molecules based on them
1: within psychiatry we are taking existing compounds everything is developed everything is manufactured synthetically even you know psilocybin um, but the idea is that um, take advantage of the fact that psilocybin for example has a, a you know a, a is very well studied and has a very good uh, safety profile. And instead of trying to develop a new molecule or some sort of new chemistry in psychiatry, take what, take what we have and, and make it work, right? So our focus within psychiatry is very much about the last mile problem, right? How do you deliver uh, this therapy to patients in need and how do you make it scalable? How do you make it affordable? How do you deliver within the existing US um, healthcare infrastructure? And so that's our focus within psychiatry, outside of psychiatry, beyond psychiatry. Then the question is, can you utilize existing compounds like, let's say, LSD, or do we have to develop new compounds to treat inflammation specifically? And um, we're taking an all-of-the-above approach when it comes to the applications beyond psychiatry.
0: Well, let's talk about your pipeline. You have two phase 1-2 programs as adjunctive therapies and major depressive orders, what are major depressive disorders?
1: So major depressive disorder is essentially depression, right? It's the classification for depression that has a, a sufficient clinical severity as to be designated kind of major depressive disorder. Um, but, um, but it's essentially depression. And the adjunctive treatment of, of MDD or, or major depression is is where we're focused because our view is that um, waiting for patients to become treatment resistant, i.e. failing at least two courses of conventional uh, antidepressant therapies is, is, is really too late. You know, roughly two thirds of all patients treated with conventional antidepressants do not respond to the first course of therapy. And so being able to provide rapid, robust, And in many cases, enduring relief from depression is our target, and without necessitating the patient to wash out or withdraw from their existing antidepressant medications, because that that creates a significant barrier both for the patient and the the psychiatrist to try anything new. And so the adjunctive treatment is intending to uh, essentially provide psilocybin or ketamine as a therapy. Uh, in addition to a conventional antidepressant. And so that's, that's our primary focus and, and primary indication within psychiatry.
0: And what's the expectation about how this would interact with an SSRI or other treatment depression?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. The, um, with ketamine, Um, We don't anticipate any interaction. Certainly there hasn't been any uh, interaction observed in the clinical literature. The ketamine is great in that respect because it doesn't um, it doesn't utilize the same pathway within within the brain to exert its antidepressant effect. Uh, Unfortunately, ketamine's effects don't last as long as psilocybin's effects. And so there's a a need for not just rapid and robust antidepressant effects, which ketamine delivers, but enduring. And that's where psilocybin becomes very interesting. The the downside of psilocybin, of course, as you allude to, is the fact that it is targeting the serotonin 2A receptor, which is a a target with SSRIs, essentially the, you know, the, the Simplified um, mechanism of action of SSRIs with the upregulation, kind of with increased amount of, of serotonin in the system, you eventually get down regulation of the serotonin 1A and 2A receptors, which may have the it may be the basis of the antidepressant effect. That typically takes anywhere from three to five weeks before you see that type of therapeutic effect. And so the implication is that if you are taking an SSRI, Um, ultimately the receptor target that psychedelics um, bind with the serotonin 2A receptor would be downregulated, i.e. to get the same psychedelic dose response, the same intensity of psychedelic effect, you would need a a higher dose than let's say someone who's not taking an antidepressant. Um, There is no... Uh, clinical research on this yet. This is a this is an area that we're going to be focused on. But there is a significant amount of anecdotal data based upon um, some research that was done in the late 90s and um, and generally kind of known in the um, in the community of scientists. And generally speaking, there's an anticipation that you would need roughly two to three times or more of these of the dose of psychedelic to have the same effect uh, in a patient taking an antidepressant and so then the question becomes is that going to be something that can be accomplished with conventional uh, routes of administration i.e an an oral formulation and and we don't think so and that's why we're developing psilocybin as an infusion therapy rather than a oral therapy because as an infusion therapy you can deliver a higher dose um, more comfortably Um, and you can do it for a shorter period of time. So it doesn't necessitate a kind of long duration of treatment. You can have a shorter duration with higher doses, and we believe them to be more tolerable in that type of format, specifically to address uh, the issue of a blunted response associated with an SSRI.
0: And what's the clinical path forward?
1: Uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, right? Uh, so, you know, with psilocybin, uh, we will be launching phase one trials, uh, at the beginning of 2022. Um, we will be determining the dose response relationships in both healthy volunteers and in patients. And then we'll be transitioning into a phase two trial. We'll be comparing our combination psilocybin therapy to, Psilocybin standalone versus a active control, and then following that, we would hope to move into phase three trials, uh, pivotal studies, to get FDA and EMA approval.
0: And is there concerns about needing to mitigate the effects of psilocybin for why people have historically used it?
1: Um, You mean, are there concerns about the Uh, hallucinatory effects? effects. Yeah. So, um, first off it, it, the perceptual effects of the drug may be linked to the antidepressant effects. No one, you know, that that's, that's an unsettled question in the field. Uh, however, our concern is not that the, that there are perceptual effects. Our concern is that the, the effects are, are not necessarily fear provoking. Right. Um, I think that, um, the, there's a, um, there's there's the discussion I think in I think it's in Hindu spirituality of the rope and the snake that you can observe a rope but if you if you mistake it as a snake then it's fear provoking but if you see it accurately as a rope then there's nothing to be afraid of and so that bias and how you look at the same thing can be kind of quite significant uh, when it comes to psilocybin I think that what we want to do is co administer a low dose of benzodiazepine, i.e. an anti-anxiety drug, so as to bias the experience away from being fear-provoking, and in that way, making it more tolerable. And so that's going to be one area that we're very much focused on in terms of improving the tolerability of such a therapy, because it may be antidepressant, but if someone has a very negative experience associated with the treatment, then they're unlikely to continue treatment. And it's very important in developing any new therapy that every um, every uh, attempt is made to make the therapy as tolerable uh, to the patient as possible.
0: You also have a program in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this is I believe, using LSD to address inflammation. Is that
1: correct? Uh, actually, it, it is correct that we are using low-dose LSD to uh, modify the course of Alzheimer's disease. I would say that inflammation is only one of many targets that LSD is hitting. You know, it, it's interesting. LSD is a it, it, pejoratively described as a promiscuous drug because it hits multiple receptors in the brain uh, with a fairly high potency relative to the amount of the actual amount of drug uh, that's in the system. Um, And so LSD provides a really unique vehicle to test the hypothesis that by addressing multiple therapeutic targets in Alzheimer's disease simultaneously, not just inflammation, but a variety of other targets uh, that are also implicated in Alzheimer's disease that by simultaneously targeting them all uh, that you may be able to modify the course of the disease, slowing or even halting its progression. What targets is it hitting? So we actually have a white paper on our website Uh, that details all of that. But, you know, it's fascinating. The, um, it's pretty much any, every target, right? So for example, amyloid. Uh, Amyloid has been the primary hypothesis in Alzheimer's research, essentially, that the excessive buildup of amyloid causes neurodegeneration. Um, However, um, you know, serotonin 2A activation reduces the kind of toxic uh, amyloid uh, precursor protein conversion to soluble amyloid beta 4042, i.e. it modulates away from the toxic amyloid um, um, buildup. Now, is it going to be as effective at that as one of the immunotherapies currently in development by Biogen or Lilly? No, absolutely not. But the fact that it's having that effect in combination with also having a uh, antidepressant effect also having an effect on reducing hippocampal hyperactivity also having an effect on enhancing cognition all of these things having been demonstrated preclinically what it suggests is that it's having an influence on the the totality of the system not just a disease target and some of the most effective drugs you know ever developed were developed by accident, and and they were developed because they had mult they, they they had multiple effects, uh, you know, where they were not just affecting one particular target, but multiple targets simultaneously, and so I think that's the real uh, proposition, the therapeutic proposition of LSD for the modification of Alzheimer's disease.
0: Is what's known about the use of LSD as a, a treatment for Alzheimer's to date has have there been any preclinical testing that
1: reinforced this? So, you know, we know it's safe uh, so far in healthy volunteers, we gave um, low doses of LSD to healthy volunteers uh, once a week for, once every four days for a month. And so it was tolerable. We know that in animal models of Alzheimer's that there's a reduction in the kind of the toxic amyloid buildup in the brain. We know that in animal models that uh, various doses of LSD appear to enhance cognition and exert antidepressant effect and reduce hippocampal hyperactivity. Um, And so there's, I would view it more as converging evidence uh, of of treatment effect, you know. Unfortunately, most of the animal models of Alzheimer's disease, even the ones that we used, are designed to test a particular hypothesis, i.e., the you know amyloid or tau or something like that. But if the the hypothesis is incorrect, then validation in the animal model doesn't necessarily translate to clinical results in humans, which has been unfortunately the last twenty to thirty years of Alzheimer's research has kind of revealed to us. So. Um, I would say to summarize, there are multiple and very intriguing converging lines of evidence, which would suggest that, um, that LSD hits multiple targets simultaneously. And I think that's, the, that's what's interesting about it. And the fact that we know it's, you know it's been, it's been in use extensively for you know, 50, 60 years, uh, and it's remarkably, from a physiological perspective, safe.
0: And is this a traditional formulation of the drug?
1: Um, oh, well, it's it, it certainly, it's going to be LSD. Now, actually, how it's going to be formulated beyond the, the kind of the, the base LSD is, is something that we're, we're developing right now. But that's just a matter of what the pill looks like or, or something like that. But yes, it's it's just LSD.
0: As you think about developing these drugs for different indications, what's the biggest challenge? Is it conventional drug development challenges that You'd face with anything is it mitigating what you might call the perceptual effects or the side effects of these substances? How, how do you think about those challenges?
1: Yeah, I would I would break them out into kind of within psychiatry and beyond psychiatry. So the great challenge within psychiatry uh, are our last mile challenges. You know, it, it's to say that in an idealized setting in a clinical trial demonstrating efficacy and safety is is something that not only will we achieve but others have achieved and so that that's not the challenge the challenge is how do you take a promising therapeutic and, and translate it into a you know accessible affordable and tolerable therapy for patients and a great example of that is the is bravado or s ketamine developed by Johnson and Johnston Janssen, where um, the drug, was approved by the FDA in 2019, but you know, due to a variety of, of, of different barriers to adoption and accessibility and, and cost to efficacy, hasn't really had the impact that people were expecting. And so it wasn't a clinical scientific challenge. It was much more of a translation challenge into actual clinical practice. And so I think those are the biggest challenges within psychiatry. Um, beyond psychiatry, Uh, The challenge is understanding mechanism of action. And based upon that understanding, creating the next generation of of therapeutics that are biased towards having that immunomodulatory effect and away from or completely devoid of the um, perceptual effects of these drugs.
0: And why are they expensive to manufacture?
1: It's, a lot, it's not about the manufacturing cost. it's much more about the actual all-in cost to delivery. So I'll give you an example. Uh, right now, uh, there, is a, uh, there are a couple of efforts underway to develop psilocybin as a treatment for depression, as an oral formulation, as a pill. And so if you take that pill, um, the, uh, the, the time from when you kind of take the pill to when the treatment is over is roughly six to eight hours and involves monitoring from at least one or two therapists in a specially controlled environment. And so that already you can see that's going to be very costly. And so the cost efficiency of that type of therapy is, um, is, is, is going to be very difficult to justify unless you can find ways of improving that cost efficiency You know, by changing the duration of the treatment, by changing the modality of the treatment. Uh, in, in the case of uh, Spravato, esketamine, uh, the UK's um, National Institute of Healthcare uh, Health and Care Excellence (Nice) has rejected Spravato twice because of uh, questionable cost efficacy. Now, Spravato has been criticized by some as being too costly, but we don't know what price was necessarily discussed with Nice. But we do know that Nice came to the conclusion that it was not cost effective. So, cost, uh, you know, cost efficiency. Is going to be very important. And so that is much more around the delivery of the care than it is about the, the cost of actually manufacturing the drug product.
0: Shlomi Raz, CEO of Eleusis. Shlomi, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group.